How do you feel when you walk into a perfectly Instagrammable early years setting? Or when you see an education space in their outdoor area completely wrapped in artificial turf? Today, we're chatting with husband and wife duo, architects and owners of Landing Studio, Emma Healy and David Pratt, all about biophilic design, the benefits of it, what we can do instead of laying astroturf and making immovable playgrounds, and how we can implement some of these ideas in our own homes and early year settings. We'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record today, the Kabi Kabi and Gabi Gabi people. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We recognise Aboriginal people as the original custodians of this land and acknowledge that they have never ceded sovereignty. We respect all Gabi Gabi elders, ancestors and emerging elders and all First Nations people listening today. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts, Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in and join us on this next adventure. So I'd love to welcome to the show Dave and Emma from Landing Studio. How are you going this morning? Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Yeah, finally through our flu, so we're feeling good. <laughs> yeah, it's, we were just talking about how people like us who don't typically get flus have been really hit by it this year and how grateful are you to have a bit of uh, fresh well, air? I can see your windows open in the background, breathing in yes. some fresh air. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but Dave's ironically, we're into actually, the backyard. Yeah, we're, we're only about 15 metres apart from each other. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the way the technology works. <laughs> uh, Vicky and I still haven't worked out how to record in the same room without feedback. So you'd think this being our job, we would have worked that out, but we still do it from separate rooms. <laughs> this goes to show anyone can do a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've got so much to cover with the two of you today and thanks for coming on as this duo. So we're going to start today with Emma. Can you run us through what biophilic design is for us noobs that have probably never heard of it and why it's so important, particularly in, say, the education space, but also in our homes as parents? Yeah. Um, I mean, don't feel bad if you haven't heard of it. It really is emerging in the design Um Field. I mean, the Living Future Institute is an organization that really, um, uh, I guess, promotes biophilic design, and it's only just had its first awards program this year. So it's kind of an emerging field. But the concept of biophilia, I'm sure your listeners and educators who listen will have heard of anyway, that just um, innate desire that humans have to be connected to the natural world and essentially biophilic design is about promoting that and allowing that to happen and ensuring that the buildings that we create allow for that. So the Living Future Institute defines um, some principles around that but there's a lot of um, emerging discourse and theory around what it actually entails but obviously one of the key things is having that direct contact with nature so flora and fauna, sunlight, water, natural air, all those things that um, we take for granted when we're outside. But um, ideally, we would have access to those things inside as well. Um, Then there's the idea of um, natural motifs. Um, So things that occur in nature, so certain geometries, patterns, fractals, things that you see occurring in nature that um, as humans, we're innately drawn to those. And um, Ironically, I think they're not always these flowing organic shapes and forms that we might think of. And like immediately when we think about nature, we think of like, oh, yeah, it's all flowing and organic. But actually, you know, the 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 shape of cells and the way that leaves are formed. And if you really zoom in on things, there's actually quite a lot of structured geometry in that, which um I think is really interesting to also play on with different scales and um, zooming in and out to find those patterns that occur in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that I think is most important from from the three principles that they've defined is this idea of place and culture. So being connected to where you are, um, no site is the same, no clients are the same, no child is the same, no use is the same, um, and certainly like understanding your your place within your local ecosystem um things that indigenous designers 
always did innately um, but we don't tend to do is locating ourselves within how do we sit within this place and like what's the natural habitat and the species that belong here and how can we support them and promote them through our design or at the very least do no harm Um, so I think that's one of the most important aspects of biophilic design from my perspective and then I would layer into that the use of materials. Mm, yes. So um, materiality is something that, especially in institutional context, can be really difficult to navigate because there's so many um, legislative requirements and hygiene and operational things that come into it. But um, ultimately, like going back again to Indigenous designers used, um, and at, at Wildlings you, you use natural materials to create structures and there's a lot of amazing natural building designers who use clay and stone and beautiful natural hardwoods so obviously that would be amazing but um, we don't always have the opportunity to do that in commercial settings so um, I was saying today this morning at breakfast actually I feel like it's a reflection of our culture that we prioritize the visual aspect of um the way things look so people will think oh I'm going to I'm going to I can't use real natural timber for budget reasons or for functional reasons so I'm going to use a vinyl flooring that looks exactly like timber Um, and that's only one aspect of the sensory experience of materials so often I find there's other materials available to us that may not look as um, uh, you know, may not look as natural, but actually much more sustainable and inherently more um, natural than your vinyl look timber flooring or something like that. So, yeah. Could you give us some examples of that? Because I'd, I'd love to hear some. Because it's exactly that. It's so often, particularly in those commercial spaces and, you know, the, in, yeah, the commercial spaces is that budget factor is huge and and also speed of being able to get a build done within school holidays. <laughs> so what are some of those suggestions? Yeah, so I'll try not to say any specific mm, yeah. product <laughs> names, but for, <laughs> for example, um, there's a product that functions very similarly to vinyl um, that's actually made of wood chips and linseed oil and it looks oh, yeah. it's like a sheet product a homogenous sheeting product so it's really functional and you can use it in almost all the same applications as vinyl um, and it's it comes in a range of different finishes but it doesn't look like timber it looks like its own it has its own aesthetic I guess um, but it's yeah it's, it doesn't have the various like the off-gassing and mm. all the things that vi- comes with using products like vinyl but has a very similar functional um, performance amazing um, so that's a good example I think also here in Queensland we have access to um, hoop pine plywood that's sourced locally which is a really good alternative to using things like um, MDF for joinery mm. and things like that so thinking um, in terms of interiors and stuff like that so there's if you talk to your designer, they should have a good understanding of what some of these options are for you and you m- might not be able to use them everywhere. But, um, yeah, it'll give you, a, it'll inherently give you a different aesthetic um, that may not be what you're expecting. Um, but I think children especially are tuned into that. Like if things mm. aren't authentic and they don't, um they may look like timber, but they don't sound like timber. They don't feel like timber. I think I think people know, even if it's not conscious, they yeah. they feel that. Absolutely. The children might not be able to verbalise what it is, but they, they absolutely know the difference between those materials, don't they? Yeah. I think, I think it's, a, it's a lot more intuitive for a child as well. In We almost shut that down as we go through daily life and, and grow. Um, and so... A, a child's sort of appreciation of of the immediate environment is much more um, much more like immediate, intuitive, and, yeah, mm. yeah, and um, and honest and authentic, as Em said. Um, so yeah, I, I I would agree definitely, and and also mater- with the materials, uh, like the the other elements of te- texture and even smell has, mm. I think, quite a big thing, particularly for for children with um, sort of. Um, higher sensitivities to things, um, it can be really important as well. Mm, I would notice that as a 
teacher in an education space, the fluorescent lighting and the mm. bright coloured furniture, mm. you know, mm. works for some children, but it actually doesn't work for a lot of children. So mm. what are some tips you have? And I'm sorry, I'm going to backtrack a little bit here because it, it trig- uh, triggered a memory was we kind of naturally innately follow biophilic design when we move place, don't we? I'm just thinking when I live near the beach, the aesthetic around my home was more beachy and the plants that I chose had to survive in a salty, windswept kind of environment. So do do you find we do do that kind of naturally or do you find in our Eurocentric kind of way that we fight it a lot still in this day and age? I think, um, yeah, people don't, I don't think all people do that. I think if mm. people are tuned in to um, really where they live and, you know, what's inherent to them too, like it's it's not just um, that aspect of style, like stylistically I I live at the beach so I'll do like a, mm. a woven lampshade or, you know, use um, linen fabrics or something because that's the latest style that reflects coastal lifestyle or something like that. Mm. It also comes into, I think, you know, what's the homes you grew up in? Like what do you remember? Mm, what do, mm. what feels good to you? Like, I, and your even your own um, your own biology. Like, um, I know Dave is really sensitive to wind, mm-hmm. and I'm not. I love like lots of fresh air blowing through all the time. So you know, everybody has a different felt connection to the environment, and I think in the mm-hmm. home environment, it's you can tailor that to suit your family and your specific needs, even if you're both a bit different, but. Um, it's harder in the education space where you're trying to cater to a lot of different people's requirements and some people aren't even, they can't really, it's hard to articulate like mm. why they feel uncomfortable in a space or why it's not working for them. Um, yeah, sorry, Dave. So I was just going to expand uh, again on that in terms of I think it's also it's a quite a generational thing as mm. well. So it's, you know, your your parents' attitude influences you a lot or even even your peer group um and so if you're not exposed to that um at an early age or even even at any formative point in your life there's you know potentially that you maintain that sort of disconnect um mm-hmm. if it if it existed in the first place um or haven't made those connections more so um so I think it it there's a there's a lot of kind of um, inbuilt progression of 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 or divergence between you know biophilic attitudes versus maybe a more cultural thing like okay well I might using the coastal example you know I might be going and and collecting shells from a local beach and you know making a um, a little um, display around the house with it. Versus going out and buying a a fiberglass or foam surfboard and hanging it on your wall, it's it's it achieves a lot of the same things, but it's from two kind of extreme differences. Yeah, so true. One's way far more connected to the space and the memory attached to it as well. I even find um, when we we were in a little tiny old settler's cottage here, it's eighty five years old, and moving from suburbia to here, the previous owners had put a lot of work into the native garden. So for us intuitively rather than fighting that clearing it and making a very manicured you know english cottage garden which would have looked beautiful with this with this space it's not my aesthetic but that's okay um it was intuitively far easier much more cost effective to go with with what was already here as well so i wonder if like you said generationally the more of us that are seeking this biophilic design people are going to intuitively pick up where the last generation picked off hopefully <laughs> mm-hmm. and then eventually there'll be some sort of backlash against it but, you know <laughs> well, let's hope not like a post-biophilic modernism or- <laughs> <laughs> um, i think um regenerative design is another term that's being spoken about a lot mm-hmm. at the moment and um you know technically i think regenerative design is meant to mean you leave you leave the place better off you leave the natural systems better off than what they were before which um, to be completely blunt is is very difficult to achieve with a building. Mm-hmm. And I mean, with a landscape, that's a different a different situation. You can quite um, 
uh, like quite honestly repair a landscape or re- mm. rehabilitate, regenerate a landscape. Um, but when it comes to buildings, unless you're doing like, you know, Dave said, like an earth ship or something, mm. um, you really aren't, you really generally are detracting from the environment in some way. They are extractive. So I think that concept of minimal infrastructure, like what's the least amount that you could make, what's the least amount that you could build to still achieve the same outcome um, is probably for me like the most regenerative um, approach that you can take Um, because often a client will come to us with an idea about, oh, I, I just, I really want to build something because I need somewhere to gather that's protected from the elements, but is still connected to the garden. And I think I need this space and blah, blah. And, and the more they talk, the more they talk about it, the more you think, are, are you describing a tree? Like, <laughs> do you want to sit <laughs> under a tree? Um, <laughs> and it, we have a joke because in first year design, a lot of people do designs that, um, are inspired by trees and it's kind of like a joke like oh yeah the the old tree building thing but um in reality they're a really brilliant design that achieves a lot of things so um sometimes the question that we ask as architects is like well what could a landscape do that um we don't necessarily need to build something at all Mm, that's really beautiful and it's so true too we've got a beautiful mango tree that isn't fruiting anymore. And every anyone that has anything to do with farming says, oh, you need to prune it back. And I go, yeah. I'm going to take it shade and it's climbing tree for my children. At yeah. this stage in our life, the fruit is a beautiful bonus. But right now I'm looking for that architectural design of the tree building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and look, that's a, that's a good point as well. It's like with the, certainly with the the more architectural element of it, your like a, a new building, you know, is not necessarily ideal in that in that space necessarily, but it can be a trade off. So, you know, if you if there isn't any other facility to um, you know pr- promote these activities, if it's a smaller intervention that um, brings in a wider awareness of the surrounding landscape, it can have a net positive. Um, so it's it's balancing those things that can be really um, really important, but you wouldn't knock down the tree to build the building. It's mm. it, it is the such preference, a, like you said, it's so nuanced, isn't it? And so individualized, and and I love that. That really is the point of it all, isn't it? It's place, it's customer, it's timing in their life, it's it's what's already there. Uh, it really is one on one customization, which is beautiful. Um, and that's a good point as well with, with with regards to maybe expanding on the biophilic design is is the the element of time and evolution mm. and you know we change as people and our environment changes around us for better or for worse um, and how do we adapt to that and evolve with it in a positive way um, and not not simply in a react reactive way. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, yeah, there's so many things. And and even taking in, um, which is the first thing you do as architects, but so many noobs as well just go, I bought it in summer and the sun's coming through here. I'd like to make this my sunroom. Well, not you wouldn't do that in Queensland, but you know, it's the seasonality of it. Our house changes every season, where we sit, where we work, where we gather, where we hold, you know, gatherings. And do you find that that's part of the biophilic design too, is making seasonal sense of the space? Yeah, definitely. I think um, we actually had a friend over the other night um, and he was doing some research into ageing well, um, so opposite end of the spectrum, but something he said I totally agreed with um, that there's an, we, we prioritise comfort and safety over everything else a lot of the time mm. when we're designing buildings. And um, sometimes a bit of discomfort or just the right amount of discomfort or just the right amount of challenge is, is a good thing. Um, and sometimes those basic passive good, sol- you know, passive design principles, um, they don't apply to particular users. So, for example, like an older person who gets really cold, they might want to capture that Western sun. They need mm. to be warmed up and they need to go and sit, um, you know, in the afternoon before the sun goes down. So 
Um, yeah, I think it is, like you said, really, really nuanced. And if you're, um, your buildings are places that you can move around to suit the different seasons and, and what you're trying to do and you don't have to have the perfect, you know, the perfect thermal comfort at all times. <laughs> you, can, you can have that interaction with the elements and feel a bit cold sometimes or, um, yeah, get a bit warm, no biggie, like, it is a biggie though, isn't it? We talk about this even in at forest school space and, you know, you've been there that we have a lot of people that won't come in the rain or the heat, you know, that mm. even outdoors they are expecting perfect optimal thermal temperature. Mm. And I think our our generation and this one coming through have, have forgotten how to be uncomfortable. And when we're talking about Oh. painting a generation with a brush about, you know, needing more resilience and grit. Sometimes it is as simple as being uncomfortable in the heat for a little bit or putting a jumper on rather than turning the air conditioning off, in, especially in this day and age with climate change and everything going on. Oh. Maybe we could be a little bit proactive in in the things that we choose rather than just being so comfortable with the push of a button. It's not that much harder to go and put a jumper on. No, absolutely. I totally agree. And it's probably a bit, I know not everyone will think that, but the, the world that our children are growing up in, um, they need to be acclimatised to more extreme temperatures. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't um, do our very best to make our buildings as comfortable as possible. Mm. But, um, you know, if we can do that in ways that still enables us to interact with the environment. Mm. So the classic example in like a lot of um a lot of daycare centres or childcare centres that you see have a particular design where only one edge is open and maybe there'll be one very small high window on one opposite wall, but the ability to cross-ventilate the space is really difficult. Um, so they do have to turn the air conditioning on quicker. Um, and close it seems the doors. To close the doors, turn the air con on. Um, there's no overhangs for the window. So as soon as the, it starts to rain, you have to shut the windows um, so you can't experience the sense of the rain um, outside. I mean, they're so basic, but um, if we can kind of be in relationship with the environment through our buildings so that we can still experience the changes of the seasons and the cha- and the elements and the hot and the cold and all those things, but not be uncomfortable, like not be, mm-hmm. you know, severely uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm so on board with that. And that's a great segue to not just early year spaces, but I will focus on that a little bit more because generally early year spaces have a smaller outdoor footprint. And one of the things we see when we go out and do consults for, you know, can you help me make this bush kindy space more usable or more multi-purpose? Because we have this limited space and we need to use it not just for bush kindy, but the garden and all of the other things. A, how do we make it sustainable? That's a really big thing, especially with the new early years framework coming in and here in Australia. But um, foot tread. Foot tread seems to be the bane of early years existence to the point that we're seeing a huge rise in artificial turf. And I'd love to, without any judgment on the centres that have them, because Mm. A, again, it's budget, it's Mm. practicality and whatnot. What I'm looking for for our audience is what are the other options that we might be able to use rather than turf and what are some of the the downsides to turf, such as the off-gassing and whatnot? You want to talk about that, Dave? Yeah, so, look, I've I've um, worked on a, a few projects over the last few years where, where um, we haven't, well, our, our design input hasn't extended to some mm. of the outdoor spaces and you end up dealing with artificial turf, whether that be on a roof terrace or e- even people's just you know lawns mm. um in the general landscape and um the the first and foremost the, the biggest problem just on a day-to-day basis is the heat load that they generate mm. um it's hotter than concrete um there's lots of research out there um and measurements and so forth they did an amazing study down in south australia i can't remember when it was but it wasn't wasn't that long ago looking at just in general heat heat sinks within suburbs and based mm-hmm. on you know natural turf versus concrete versus astroturf and and levels of irrigation and so forth but um the other like i think major problem that you touched on it as well look it is an artificial product it's 
essentially plastic most of it. Um, it leaches um, with rain and, and wear and so forth. Um, it does off gas. Um, thankfully, it's outdoors usually, so it's not mm-hmm. such a big thing, but environmentally it's not great. Um, and one of, one of the major things that I've noticed over the years is the creation of little microplastic shards from it um and that the same goes for for example recycled tire softball where Mm -hmm. it's that sort of nice soft matting and stuff that just breaks off into little perfect little grains that birds pick up animals consume or gets yeah true true Mm -hmm. and look and you you know that's that's a terrible environmental thing um now the trade-off is most of the most of these spaces that end up with astroturf um, it's about creating an open, flexible, usable space outdoors with that within that limited space. So, so that might be for you know playing board games or you know group activities. How do we separate those spaces off? So, for example, if you're having uh, a um, an activity where you're all sitting around in a circle, why does that have to be on? Uh, a lawn or a flat surface um we can create a specific platform for that or you know as as simple as a series of it might be some logs or some rocks or something in a circle where the kids can can be um um connected in that in that way um so it's i guess creating or influencing people into a different different mode so it might be a case of having a series of stepping stones if you're if you're looking for an open space to get between spaces you might direct that traffic through and create something that's actually quite playful at the same time um so it's, I, I guess breaking it down from one big open space to a series of smaller activities and if if you do have that need for that big open space where you might run around or you you're playing ball games or um tiggy or something like that potentially that becomes an an external activity where you do utilize the local parks you utilize um you know you you get out into into the community and so forth rather than being essentially contained in this very small space yeah Um, and i'd love to touch on that because there's a um, there seems to be this increase in centres that don't do excursions. And the reason is risk. And yet we've been doing excursions in kindies forever. The, the risk hasn't increased. Perhaps traffic, I will give, you know, the traffic may have increased, but there's so many ways to mitigate that. And the benefits, and if we're looking again at um, the outcomes that we're looking for in children, community is one of the hugest, one of the biggest parts of our early years framework is community. So one of the easiest ways we can do that is by outreaching into our community and going to our parks and talking to the local football club and asking their local soccer coach if they can come and do a, you know, a little session with the kids. So I think what, like you, what you're talking about solves a multitude of, of problems. Well, not problems, it, it creates, like you were saying, increased benefits. So I think we need to think outside the box that is minimal. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's, it's expansion through constraint. And so, I mean, a, a big thing for me in the sort of in the process of design and, and any design is constraint is actually an opportunity. So if you, if you maybe limit the potential of a certain space you refocus it mm. uh and you you direct a different activity onto that space and you have the opportunity somewhere else for that i yeah. know this kind of sounds a bit kind of wafty but no. um like for for example going going back to the idea of having a, a series of stepping stones where you have you know it's a defined path um which hopefully evolves over time with we, when you find out that the kids actually don't want to follow that path in that direction, they <laughs> always, want to follow it in that direction and you change path, that. <laughs> um, but you, you have this, you know, you have something solid, something that's fun for them, but then surrounding that becomes a permeable, a permeable space, whether that just be, you know, mulch or, or, or even, even garden. And that changes the, the children's attitude potentially as well. They become more active in caring for what's happening around there. Mm. Um, 
I mean, obviously with a little bit of assistance and influence in that. Um, but w- essentially it kind of comes down to almost creating, you know, thresholds of activity. So mm. they can go crazy in that spot, but that spot they start to take a little bit more responsibility and care over, hopefully. Yeah, I love and, that. Uh, look, and, and we, we do see that at, at the, the school that our children go to, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially pretty unruly most of the time. <laughs> um, but then you do, the little spaces evolve within it where a lot of care and respect is taken from it. So mm. it, it becomes a little bit more um, kind of haphazard in the way, the way things are created and evolve. Mm, um, rather than our really it? kind of defined control yeah exactly exactly mm. and and you have to work within a, like a level of mess and a level of risk yes. um which uh i think to some extent influences the use of a lot of the materials is like whether it be soft fall or or um AstroTurf, but not that AstroTurf in, in any way is a, I would consider safe. a safe material. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's consistent and that's about it. Mm. Um, but, I mean, we've all had those horrible AstroTurf burns slipping over on tennis courts as kids and mm. we're still on a, one of those irrigated hockey fields. Um, and, um, yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's about balancing out those things a little mm. bit and you, you can mitigate it and the, you know, it allows the kids to take a bit more personal responsibility as well. Mm. It makes me think. It makes me think of that um, when we were deciding what school to go to to send our kids to, and we had a friend who just lived across the road who had taught at our kids' school, and we were like, when we first visited the school, we were taken aback. We were like, oh. This is like if we tried to run a school. I'm not sure if this is good. Um, <laughs> but he said something to us as like, um, everybody talks about the dangers of the alternative. No one talks about the dangers of the mainstream. I'm and silently clapping I, in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was such a brilliant, totally um, a, great, a great statement for me. And when we're talking about the dangers of landscaping, like, oh, we wouldn't want to do a dry creek bed with river stones because kids could throw a rock at another kid or um, we wouldn't want to do um, some native grasses because there could be a snake or um, all these things. You know, oh, the classic one is like plant poisonous plants. Well, every, you know, this, yes, if you ate um a huge quantity a kilo, of that, yeah. <laughs> a kilo of those berries, yes, it would be ill. But um, compared to some of the cleaning products you have stored in on the premises, this is what nowhere mm. near as poisonous as that. So um, it's that kind of like we question we question certain things that are different, but we don't question the status quo a lot of the time. Yeah, it's and we talk about mm. this here on the podcast all the time, like true risk versus perceived risk, and sometimes that mainstream risk is just so normalised that we don't see it as a risk. Like you're talking yeah. about the AstroTurf. Of the centres I've been to, they're the, the ones with the AstroTurf are the ones that spend the least amount of time outdoors here in Queensland because it's too hot to go out on. Yeah. So, again, what, yeah. what is the risk there? They're going indoors, closing the doors, sitting in the ruminating recycled air conditioning, or are they yeah. better off on a little bit of dirt and getting the odd grazed knee yeah. and getting that fresh yeah. air and, and those microbiomes in that soil? So... Yeah, I love I love that quote of yeah about the mainstream. Again. It was very fabulous. yes, very um, poetic of our neighbour. <laughs> um, but I think also with the astroturf thing, some of the big dangers are the invisible dangers, and people yes. like you don't think of that mm. the impact that runoff into the into the water system and mm. like actually putting some really dangerous chemicals. Even though things are made of recycled rubber, that's great, it's recycled, but what's in that and what's degrading and what's going into so it's not things that people can tangibly um connect with, but it's mm. having a much broader, a much broader impact. Yeah. In terms of, you know, how how do you you know, there's often often in those sort of spaces, you you've got this kind of um sterile um astroturf but then you're you, you might have um, this annoys me incredibly um you might have the little planter boxes with you mm. know your little veggie patch in it or something like that and it's 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 
look, it's positive, but it's tokenistic. Yes. Um, and how how do you bring a, a, a more like how do you embrace you know a natural ecology, even though it, it might be a created space? H- how do you facilitate um, and uh, natural little ecosystem? So you want to encourage lizards into the garden, mm. and you like. No, like and snakes are a funny one because yeah, they know, people, happen. People they are happen on the astroturf centres. They happen in the most mm. elite private schools in Australia. They're just a part of our life, and what we need to do is teach children what to do when we see one, not pretend we yep. can avoid them. <laughs> and, and look, and that goes to the attitude of the parents as well, yeah. um, and and to some extent the educators, absolutely, um, because um, I, I've come up with this personally in in the school that I work at where there's a big furor about an animal that, you know, people are concerned about and rightly concerned about, but it's it's actually a completely harmless animal and it's great that it's in the space. It's doing a really mm. specific purpose. Um, and it, it's, it's, it comes down to attitude more than anything. Um, and, you know, if we can change those attitudes and promote those creatures and familiarity with those creatures, we're obviously not exposing them to a, a horrible brown snake or something like that <laughs> unnecessarily. Um, but um, it, it, I think, makes a big difference and it can activate those spaces as well. Yeah. Like this, this space is, you know, this rock is where the blue tongue lizard lives and we care for that blue tongue lizard and mm. it becomes a really important part of, you know, the little community, the school community yeah. and, and people looking out for it, working together collaboratively to, to maintain this little environment for this, this creature. You're building empathy. You're building sense of a narrative around the space and the creature. Like it's, there are so many positives for these things and you've absolutely nailed, and this might trigger some parents listening, but we so often design particular early year spaces because now they are a business and we know they're a business because property developers are in them and, and you know, making great money from them, that we're trying to meet parents' needs and wants over children's needs and wants. So we're choosing the things that look marketable and Instagrammable and look wonderful in our social media accounts versus the spaces that are genuinely used for play. and. We need to sit with those when we come into those spaces, like your school and other places I've been where we go, wow, that's looks like chaos. But if you reframe the language that we're using, it looks like children play here. It looks like children have fun here versus it looks like children are going to burn themselves and inhale a lot of gas. <laughs> <laughs> it comes down to that empowerment piece, I think, um, mm-hmm. when kids feel that they're empowered to interact, alter, change the environment um and I feel like natural landscapes inherently offer that to kids they Mm. feel like they're not going to break something they're not going to do something wrong that um if we can bring that into the building into the buildings we design as well I think that's um and the landscapes like we were Dave and I were talking about that what you were touching on Dave with having this one raised planter that giving kids these sort of like um curated outdoor gardening experience that isn't actually meaningful and they know that instead of instead of giving them something Dave's really good at this giving kids jobs to do in the garden in the landscape that that actually need to be done and it's actually helpful to you real work and um, I was trying to think of what some of like um, I know they sound really not all kids, like one of our kids would not like weeding, but one yeah. of our kids loves weeding or like, um, yeah, creating habitat or even just like putting an irrigation pipe, as silly as it sounds, but like things like that actually, I mean, you can get some better examples of empowered um, gardening or landscape experiences that kids can engage with and actually be helpful. <laughs> it's that contribution, isn't it? Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's collaborative and it's... Um, it's the 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 main element that I see is it's it's a um, it's like a continuity. Um, so you know, like a weeding as an example, it's such a mundane thing, but it, 
it teaches, and I've noticed it with, with our kids specifically, is, you know, they start to recognize, you know, what, what's a weed and what's the plant that we want to keep. And the ambiguities of that sometimes, you know, a weed isn't the eye of the beholder. So Mm -hmm. they kind of question, okay, well, how's this working in the ecosystem? Um, Maybe not as directly as that, but they're getting a feel for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And they start to ask a lot more questions and just general, you know, putting out the question, not necessarily specifically of me or or whoever's helping them. they might be going, oh, well, does, the, does this creature live off this plant? Um, you know, is it, is it a creature that I can tolerate mm. in the garden? Um, do I need to remove it? Mm. Um, and, but, but also then they, they come back and they see how that changes, how that evolves. And, you know, another creature might have moved in to eat that other creature or eat, <laughs> eat that plant and or that plant suddenly gone to flower and it's totally changed the situation or it starts to overshadow other plants and, and so forth. So it's, it's getting a feel for the flux in the natural environment and not trying to contain it into a, a, a picture of what it should be. Or a um, timetable because I think you touched on that yeah. again, that beautiful planter box is we plant it, somebody somebody else generally waters it or it gets overwatered, which, again, is part of the cycle. But if you've just got a garden that you're in and, Dave, you're out there working and at weeding but you're not, it's not, okay, on Wednesdays we go to the garden and we all must garden, there's such a nuance in that free will. And if they're seeing Dave role modeling that contribution, the choice, the uptake of that activity is so much higher than that timetabled activity as well. Mm. And it, you notice the kids start to communicate with each other about it as well. So it's not just communicating with their educator. Um, it it becomes a much more equitable hierarchy. Well, uh, it d- disperses the hierarchy, if anything. Um, <laughs> yeah, as in the, the kids are actually going, oh, did you notice this? And did you notice that? And then they work together. And, you know, sometimes you find that, you know, little stories spiral out of control, but that's just as relevant. So yeah. they kind of learn what what's real, what's not, and or they want to go and have a look for themselves and verify the information that they've been <laughs> given by their friend. Some of that is risk. You know, they're playing with the thought of risk even, you know, oh, do I want to be really brave and go and check out that creature or not? And and that's, mm. again, in a planter box, you're probably not going to get that, whereas you've got these adventures and these minute, again, scaffolded risks. Nobody's forcing everybody to go and see the blue tongue, but it's there yeah. if you'd like to go and, you know, mm. go and check it out. Yeah, right. and I, I, I noticed this as well in the, the, the school that I work in, which is a secondary school. So, I mean, the kids are, you know, You'd think a, a little bit more, you know, knowledgeable <laughs> about things. Um, yes and no, yes and <laughs> generally. No. But high school um, teacher. <laughs> but I often, I often see that the the kids will come and they're very cautious about interacting with the plants in the garden. So, mm-hmm. like, as in, this is a productive garden. Um, and so they're they're often like they'll come in and they're going, oh, I'm just wanting a little bit of parsley or a little bit of coriander or something and they just take one leaf mm-hmm. and i know they're being cautious about things and but it's their attitude is like it's 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 good that they're not overusing it but at the same time i'm like it's your garden you need to mm. experiment take Sell a handful it, of it. it if you waste a little bit you know where it goes it goes back into the garden it goes into mm. the compost if you don't know where that is come and see someone who does know and that, to see kids that you've had that discussion with earlier on come into that space then and they come in with an extra confidence. And once again, they start communicating with their peers and they're like, oh, well, this is, this is actually this and not this. And, you know, you might want to take some of that and try that as an alternative or, or combine them together. And it becomes much more collaborative and experimental. Mm. Um, and it's it's an absolute pleasure oh that's so nice to hear because I do worry because we see this of all (laughs) ages as well exactly the same as you children really careful 
with what they're doing, which is, you know, one side of that is really beautiful, that they're being so, so respectful. But I think the respect comes from being scared of it rather than the respect of it. And the other side of that is I don't know that these children know that nature is robust and that nature can handle it because they haven't been brought up with it. They haven't grown up around people pruning trees right back till they look dead and then them coming back more abundant. They haven't seen, I think they see things be bulldozed and then buildings get put there and nature didn't handle that, you know. So those gardening experiences are so important for children to realise that nature is super powerful and we can get in there and bust it up but it it will come back (laughs) yeah I think that's such a beautiful like connection to to we're part of nature and so if you're seeing nature as fragile you're seeing yourself as fragile too and so it's like um those kids that know oh I, I trampled that little plant but it'll be okay I'll fix it up and like Oh, it's the same with us, you know. Mm. If we ha- we'll be okay generally. Um, yeah, so a little bit well. of help and love and fresh yeah. air and warm water, warm water, warm yeah. sunshine. Yeah, but it's also in, like reinforcing the the you know the concept that things are ephemeral as well. Yes. and yeah, you, you know it. You know, some some things are robust and they survive, and other things you might accidentally kill or. Mm. Yeah, and that is that's a valid thing as well, and that's a learning experience. Absolutely, um, we're all to, part of the great you know, cycle. And like, and I do that every day <laughs> myself. Still, <laughs> um, you know, you, you make mistakes and you come back better from it. So, mm. um, yeah. okay, so to to round this conversation up, then, what would you say your top couple of tips are around introducing biophilic design, whether that's in a new build, whether that's a reno, whether that's not doing anything new to your building, or whether that's landscaping or early years or school space? You want to start, Emma? Yeah. Um, I think if there was one question I was going to ask myself if I was designing my home or a learning space for um with biophilic principles in mind, the first question I would ask is, what are the challenges and joys, the challenges I'm trying to overcome, the joys that I'm trying to promote in my life, and is there a landscape solution or a landscape element that can achieve that um, as opposed to a building element? And then obviously there will be aspects that you will need to build. I'm an architect. I don't want do myself out of a job altogether but um <laughs> if you're going to if you're going to build something how does it enhance your relationship to the natural world so um pending really extreme climate events like fire flood etc in those kind of um you know the extremes of winter and the extremes of summer that are um challenging but not unbearable what are the aspects that you can integrate into your home that will allow you to experience those um, those seasonal extremes with the most um, ease that have the least impact? So it's as simple as having an awning over a window so that you can still have it open when it's raining. Um, or it's as simple as having... Um, making sure you have the ability to cross-ventilate, so not having spaces that that have um, windows extremely far apart and and thinking about, you know, where do the prevailing breezes come from? These are like real basics of passive um, sustainable design, but in a lot of contemporary homes and learning spaces, they're not, they're not well known. So like sunlight is is antibacterial you know it can you get direct sunlight into your bathroom so that it can cleanse the space you know there's just so many things you can do that can enhance your relationship with nature um in the way that you live and, and use buildings mm, can't wait to see more of that what about you dave what are your mm. tips um my my big thing is to really focus on thresholds thresholds between all manner of spaces whether it be between a building and the landscape or even within the building itself or within the landscape itself um because they're really the where a lot of transition happens and and uh, there's a lot a lot of activity um by the side of them that don't necessarily interact particularly well and so if you have a threshold that allows um 
you know, a transition between those activities in a more fluid way, it allows flexibility. Um, uh, so like an example, like, and, and, and this is coming back to, you know, an, uh, like an early childhood uh, learning space. They're often really like, you might have a, a threshold that's like you, you've got your door and then you might have a little awning or a little covered space and then you just got blasting sun beyond that. And, but they're not really that different. Whereas you might have something that's really organic as like your landscape and essentially quite dirty and you know, messy and you might have lots of stuff that kind of moves around in that space. But then you have a, a threshold which to some extent captures that. It's It's a it's sort of a halfway zone where it's it's still got those very earthy elements it's a bit more open and and relaxed where you can still be a little bit dirty and then you've got an internal space that which can be um, a bit more controlled and a bit cleaner and and so forth and that allows those doors to be open all the time um if you're controlling light and temperature and um and heat masses and, and so forth um, but even in the even in the garden, it, it's like little thresholds between what's what's a hard impermeable material versus something that's soft and permeable versus something that's green and and really um, actively growing. So um, that's the beauty of having a design landscape, isn't it? So even though yes, wild landscapes are what we need to be in wild like purely wild landscapes but in those learning centers we were relating it to that concept of circles of security where people can mm. move through transition spaces at their own pace and at, when they want to and when they feel like it so kids can move into the next zone which is a little bit more challenging a little bit more wild and then come back and you know navigate that with ease as opposed to the educator saying it's in time everyone's in shut the doors and then, okay, everyone's out. We're cleaning the space. Goodbye. Um, you know, letting that, that threshold, it, the well-designed thresholds in both the garden and the building can really empower people to. I think that I agree that, yeah. then, that then takes that burden off of educators because, you know, the cleaning often falls to educators as well. So mm. one of the, they might believe in messy, dirty play, but when it mm. comes down to the practicality of I've got to squeeze in mopping this floor before close, mm. if there's not that, like you said, that transition space, that threshold, they're mm. more likely to shut the doors, clean up, then let them continue playing in that space where they're not going to track in so much dirt. So. Yeah, I'd hundred percent reiterate that, and and the multiple parts. Yeah, I, I just it just made me think of where that a lot of that's come from for me is, and um, I I was lucky enough to do a job I, ages ago um, up at a farmhouse, which was um, an old dairy, and you, you know, in architectural homes, you often see the, this idea of the the mud room, oh, which is so kind of like this forgotten um, <laughs> back of the house and space, and but this this house had. Um, basically a like this really chunky raw kind of roughly built veranda which was the mud stage and they were literally coming from like a moist dairy mud stinky you got yeah. your boots <laughs> and you've been trudging through 30 centimeters of of muck and and poo and everything and and you come up onto this deck and you know you just take your boots off and the deck itself is is pretty grotty by at one end, but by the time you get down to the the kitchen to walk into it, it's a lot cleaner because you've taken mm. your boots off, and everything just kind of falls through the space. And so it was this, I don't know how like a, a you know sheep, thoughtfully designed it was, but it actually worked amazingly well. Um, the UK do it really well with the forest schools because it's so wet, it's so muddy mm. there. They will often have that muck room with gumboot storage, rain jacket storage, and it, and it is wet and it is damp. But like you said, it's that transition from completely muddy, wet and dirty, and then it's a hose-offable, you know, they can hose that space down rather than having to get a mop out as well. And I think even accessibility, if you've got a shower and a bathroom with access to the outdoors rather than having to trudge through the middle of the centre with your muddy boots to go to the bathroom, then, you know, again, you're facilitating that outdoor play without that, oh, don't come in here, you're all wet and you're all muddy and mm. you won't be able to go back outside. It is design. It always comes back to design. Mm. And one last thing I want to add to those tips is I would say, particularly, oh, I was going to say here in Australia, but in most countries like what, what are the First Nations stories? Like if you have a view of um, a mountain that has a beautiful story to it, 
how can we, you know, frame that in our windows and and have that as part of our narrative? You know, there's, there's so many ways. It's not just the tree. Like, what's the story behind the landscape that we can bring in as well? I'd love mm. to see more of that in our early years. And we talk and talk and talk about embedding First Nations perspectives when often it could be as simple as framing the the instigator of, of one of our most well-known stories as well. So, yeah, that's mm. my little Or a, a local creature that that lives large in, in yes. um, local traditions and stories. Uh, and that can, that can be something really tiny, but you know it, it's yeah embracing and, and understanding that and making putting that to the forefront mm, absolutely it's i can't wait to see more of it all right are you ready for a couple of rapid fire questions i might alternate it if that's yeah. all right yeah sure. yeah sure all right so i might start i'm gonna throw you under the bus here you guys yeah that's what's your favorite book of all time or what are you currently <laughs> reading emma Okay, so I'm going to give you two. Um, mm-hmm. at the, from a design perspective, I've got it with me. There's such an old book, A Pattern Language, by Christopher Alexander and a bunch of other um, contributors for architects. It's kind of like the Bible. But what I thought was um, relevant about it is it talks about the kind of spaces that people innately want to be in from the huge city scale all the way down to, you know, a, a, a deep windowsill to, you know, these tiny spaces. And I think um, when we're talking about designing learning spaces or designing our homes, sometimes we get stuck in the same tropes of looking at other houses or looking at other schools or other learning centres for inspiration when we could be looking so much more broadly at spaces that just excite us or inspire us. And that book is really beautiful for doing that. So I love that. I love that book. Um, and then the other one I was going to talk about is actually a kid's book um, that we've been reading over and over again with our kids for ages, um, The Legend of Little Fur. It's like a four-part series by Isabel Carmody. And um, I just adore it because she's a little um, forest creature. She has all these animal friends, but they're just so confounded about the way us humans behave and, like, listening to them question what we take for granted and the things that we do and why are they doing that is so beautiful and just so illuminating and wise. Yeah, I love that. Oh, I, I love Isabel Carmody. She was around when I was a, a teen, so that, <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up for my own childhood in a child. <laughs> Dave, did you have any you wanted to add or do you want me to move to the next I, one? Look, I do, I do. And and this is this is actually a book that's kind of come, keeps coming back. It's mm, it's um, it's the it's called The World Without Us uh, by Alan Wiseman. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's getting a bit old now. Well, not old, but it's, it's still relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I think it's from about two thousand five or something like that. So it's pre-COVID, and the, the whole concept is that what if we were humanity was just to disappear, like literally vanish, not necessarily through any <laughs> cataclysm or anything, and we were to leave all of our constructs in mm-hmm. place. What would happen, and how would the Earth? recover and what you know what legacy would we have and what is actually meaningless what would the earth just consume and turn back to to um you know just part of the system again mm, um nature can and it's just it. a really it's, it's <laughs> one of those books that's sort of an equal measure is really uplifting and also just kind of horrifying in the <laughs> the, the terrible things that we do to this planet um and also from a social perspective as well. Um, but, yeah, that's a great, absolutely great book and it's, I think it's still relevant. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's it's one of those ones I've kind of read and then a couple of years later I'll, I'll find it again and I'm like, oh, I'll just read that again. Um, now, the other one as well, which I, I, I would have to probably put as my all-time favourite, it's actually two books together mm. um, and it's kind of a bit of a dorkier thing but it's they're they're absolutely awesome is um the queensland museum books uh wildlife of greater brisbane and wild plants of greater brisbane they're they're really they've struck struck the balance perfectly between being like accessible and not too like tome like in their information um but um enough information that it really sparks your interest to research further um and look and the kids and i 
reference it like on a weekly basis. Mm. Um, so it's just brilliant. Oh, well, both of them are brilliant. So definitely awesome. grab them. Have you got a willy wagtail in your backyard? What's the little? Uh, it's a bu- it's a butcher bird. It's a butcher bird. I'm, lo- I'm loving hearing that. Again, <laughs> speaking of biophilic design, we're having a biophilic podcast today. <laughs> it's so nice. You know, you don't even notice it, and then every now and then you're like, ah, oh, such a calming, such a calming sound. Um, mm. All right, where do they both? Maybe as a family, where do you go as a family to reset after a rough day of parenting? <laughs> I was going to say um, Bunya River. Um, which is not too far from us. Um, but getting in water, natural, like in the creek and the river, it always kind of calms everyone down. Um, just being around it if it's too cold for swimming. Um, but the thing I love about Banya Riverside is like actually seeing all the teenagers in nature, using nature away from screens and away from all the stereotypes of what teenagers are like and what they do they're just having fun because again it's it's just this space that you can be more wild and be more free and um swing from ropes out of trees and um yeah I every time I see the the teenagers there I think oh this is good this is this is working yeah yeah and it's it's great because you you see like all the a whole breadth of different people yeah. Uh, in that space, uh, or in the all of the, all of the spaces, and um, so you might yeah you get you know joggers running through, or you, you've got people who are there um, waiting to snap take snapshots of the platypus that live there, who are incredibly game and and will just wait for the teenagers or the dogs that are swimming to go, and then they just pop their heads up like in broad daylight. It's it's just an amazing amazing place, and. Look, in some parts of it are a bit degraded because of the use, but at, mm. at the same time, it it's a really good example of how nature can kind of coexist with us and and um, continue without our um, in spite of us. Maybe is a better yeah. way of putting it. I firmly believe yeah. we need those spaces where nature does take a little bit more rough handling for us to connect mm. with it because if we don't mm. again we're going to have that generation of children that have just never connected with it so to see those teenagers down there creating their own narratives around that space that they'll always have those fond memories and we can't recreate spaces like that so if we can mm. just mm. lead people to them and hopefully they respect it enough that if and when we ever disappear again <laughs> We won't yes. even know we were over there in that space, perhaps. <laughs> yes. And as much as there is, I think, a real importance for conservation and, like, na- um, national parks where you can't yeah. interact too roughly with anything, mm-hmm. I think that's super yeah. important, but it's also super important to have those wild spaces where you can just kind yeah. of get in and do stuff. Yeah, I agree. We um we often get, not often, every now and then we get a comment on the erosion of one of our mudslides. And I think a lot of people don't, also don't realise that the space that we use is not our own, it's a public space. Mm-hmm. And those mudslides have always been there. And even yeah. if we, we do, re, we replant and we go and we leave it and we regenerate it. And if we come back, the children have done it for oh. the neighbourhood <laughs> anyway. So, yeah. you know, what what we choose to do is refurbish everything, restore wherever we can and leave space where they can make those memories and connect as well. And we just try and pick a space where it's not as damaging and won't be so eroded there. So they do, they they need it. And if they, we don't provide it for them, they will find it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Anyway, mm-hmm. Which is great. Yeah. yeah. And, and that comes back to that trade-off of like, is it better to have them in that space doing their, their thing? If it's causing a little bit of damage, because it's activating the rest of that space and the consciousness around that mudslide. Yeah. And and if we do sense. the conversations <laughs> we have around that mudslide about erosion, about foot tread, about our impact. We wouldn't have them if we didn't have that small space where we were. And then when we do do the regeneration, they are more actively involved because they know they've caused it. So they're more happy to go and help plant and fix the space around Mm. it as well, which is beautiful. All right. If you had to choose just one thing to change about the education system, what would it be? Oh, that's a tricky one. It is. And loaded. So feel free to pass as well. (laughs) Do you know what? I reckon it would just be, 
I think we just really need to take better care of our educators so that they mm-hmm. can be their fullest selves in what they're trying to achieve and what they're trying to do. I don't have a solution to that, but I feel like so many beautiful people who want to um, provide amazing experiences for our kids, but they just don't have the opportunities in their workplaces to do that. And You're the first person in over 150 episodes to say that, and I think <laughs> educators everywhere will be applauding it. Thank you as an educator. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, more days off, more money. I don't know. More money, more money. Well, I think a bit of everything because the the overarching um, appearance is that educators are just overworked Mm. um, and overworked with a whole lot of extraneous junk that doesn't need to be there when Mm. the focus can be the children and and also having the time and space for them to look after themselves. Yeah, 100%. It's, you know, maybe the five-day work week's not, not the be-all and end-all for educators. Maybe they can get some more planning time or maybe take a half-day off or a rotating roster like many, many other corporate jobs have. You know, maybe a nine-day fortnight wouldn't be so bad for our educators or anybody. <laughs> Amazing. And finally, where can we find out all about your work? And if we want to contact you about biophilic design and land, whatever it is, where can we talk to you guys? I think um, probably the best way to contact me is on my email, Emma at landings-studio.com. Um, that we're on Instagram as well, which is at, um, at landings underscore, underscore studio. <laughs> Beautiful. So if you've got any questions or you've got a project you love more nature in and more regenerative thought to it, these guys are your team please go and support them because the more of this we see again the more likely the next generation are going to come across these houses and just intuitively keep what's already there um, rather than maybe knocking down and starting again not that there's anything wrong with that as well but taking into consideration our, our landscape and how we can caretake for it more carefully Thank you so much much for coming. Thank you. It's been so wonderful having you on. And I I love how, you know, we're about alternative education and parenting and nature, but there's so many aspects to that. You know, it is this network and web that we can't talk about design without talking about the impact on nature and and how to connect with each other and with nature. So thank you for offering what you offer. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you.